Well, good morning, everyone. Ruth and I worked really hard to make sure that um, you could remember our names because we've got near on exactly the same name. So you're just safe to say Ruth and it'll be one of us. Um, so it's a great pleasure to be with you here this morning. And I just wanted to start by reminding you um, why you're here to think about um, what it means to live slave free. When we talk about slavery, we're using an umbrella term, and it can be a bit tricky to define, um, but it covers a number of circumstances um, where someone may um, be forced by violence, lies, or coercion to work for no or very little pay. Now, modern slavery covers um, human trafficking as well as forced labor. So when we're talking today about slavery, we're using a big umbrella definition that covers a whole load of things that you've probably heard about already. Um, it's estimated that more than 40 million people are in slavery today. It's not a new thing. In fact, it's something that um, we've seen in every generation. And many people think it's over. In fact, not that long ago, we celebrated 200 years since the abolition of slavery. Yet, it's still happening all around the world, but it's just illegal. There are more slaves today than there were when, the, uh, when we abolished slavery. There's more slaves today than ever before. Whether that's in forced labor, growing our food, whether that's making our clothes, whether that's in the sex trade. But now it's hidden. Now it's behind closed doors. It's a secret crime, which is one of the fastest growing crimes in the world. And there are children as young as four who are trapped in slavery today. And like I said, so slavery is not a new thing. We have even seen biblical examples of it. So Joseph was trafficked himself. He was sold into slavery by his brothers to the Midianites, who knew that if they took him to Egypt, they would get a good price for him. And he was sold to be Potiphar's slave. Just like today, in places like Egypt back then, which was rapidly growing, it was having a huge expansion, it was seeing great development, we find that there are many slaves in places that are rapidly growing and developing today. And those are the places where people who are living in poverty are left behind. They're at the bottom of the ladder um, and they are left with very little options. They're left vulnerable, unsure how to be able to provide for their families. And that's when coercion and lies and very little options leads people to end up in forced labor or to be trafficked. And so as you're here today to look at how you might live slave-free, you're not the first. You'll be pleased to know. The church has a huge history of tackling slavery over the years, and I'm sure all of you will know of William Wilberforce, who was a key Christian who had a profound Christian experience. So he was a politician, um, and then he had... Um, a conversion experience in, nine, in 1789, and it was then that, from that point on, that his life changed. From that point on, he um, began to speak out and use his position in Parliament to um, tackle slavery of the day. And if, I don't know if you've ever seen the film Amazing Grace. Um, great film, kind of dictates or tells the story of the um, abolitionist movement, and there's an amazing scene in it that I really love that Thomas Clarkson, who was one of the kind of key abolitionists who's part of the Quaker um, movement, he's trying to um, encourage William Wilberforce to get involved. Um, and he's kind of conflicted in his opinions. And he says this to him, Mr. Wilberforce, we understand you're having problems choosing whether to do the work of God or the work of a political activist. And then they say, we humbly suggest that you can do both that they're not one and the other. That when they're talking about being a political activist, they're not talking about party politics, they're not getting in, involved in complicated things, they're talking about speaking up for those people who have no power. And William Wilberforce is an amazing example of a Christian speaking up 
against issues and leading the church um, in this way of change. And he was supported by the church all around the UK who signed petitions um, against slavery. And then for the women who couldn't at that time vote, they were leading the sugar boycott where they said that they um, would no longer take sugar in their tea um, if it was um, sugar that had been made by, grown by slaves. You see, that was then widely supported by the Methodist Church, by churches around the country. The church was at the forefront of tackling the issue of slavery. And uh, today we want to suggest that you might be part of the church today at the forefront of tackling modern day slavery. That um, we as Christians can use our voice to speak up and our actions um, can tell a thousand words. So... Um, I just want to, I'm just reminded of this passage um, in Romans that I just want to read to us today. And this is from the message version, just because um, it kind of makes us think about our, our everyday life. So it says, it's Romans 12, 1 to 2, and it says this. So here's what I want you to do. God helping you take your everyday, ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work, and walking around life and place it before God as an offering. Embracing what God does for you is the best thing you can do for him. Don't become so well-adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God. You'll be changed from the inside out. So as we talk about living slave-free today, um, I want you to think about your everyday, ordinary lives and how you can live them as a sacrifice to God by using our voices to speak out um, against the injustice of slavery and changing our habits to begin to live slave-free. So I'm going to hand over to Ruth now, who's going to um, get us thinking about what slavery looks like today. Thanks, Ruth. Hi, everyone. I'm the other Ruth. Does that sound sounds weird to me? Is it okay? Okay, it's lovely to be here. Um, I work for International Justice Mission, as Lindsay said, um, the world's largest anti-slavery organization. Um, back in March, uh, IJM decided to do a campaign um, for Lent, which was give it up for freedom. That does sound kind of odd, doesn't it? Oh, this way? Oh, the other way? If I move this? Is that better? Okay, I don't want to deafen everyone. Um, So we were doing a campaign, Give It Up For Freedom, and we were challenged to give up chocolate, coffee, or makeup um, over the Lent period. I don't drink coffee, I do love chocolate, but whenever I heard about giving up makeup, that felt to me like the biggest challenge um, for six weeks. I don't know if anyone in the room identifies with that. Um, So, and the reason behind it, it wasn't just, you know, so we could all go au natural for a little while. the, The reason is because those, for those three products, and um, there's often exploitation and slavery in the pipeline of those products in the supply chain. And so what I learned is that with makeup, um, there's a product that's often used called mica, um, and it's uh, quarried, and it's the thing that gives like your blusher or your eyeshadow, all the men are nodding, your blusher or your eyeshadow, it's shimmer, and there's a huge amount of exploitation um, and illegal mining of mica, particularly um, in places like India. Uh, it's used uh, to bring that to our uh, shops and then we buy it. Um, and so the challenge was to stop using it for six weeks to do some research about which companies might be better and more ethical and have thought through this process. Um, and also maybe to save up some of the money and then to give that um, to those who are rescuing those enslaved. And it was interesting. Um, I wish that I could say I felt totally free to be myself by the end of it. Um, I do use a little bit of makeup now still. Um, But what it showed me is that it can be really hard to act on principle and to know certain true things, um, but to take the more awkward or inconvenient path 
Um, it's easier just to go to Boots and to buy what I like and what I know. It's a bit harder to take time to do the research, to find out the information, to ask the questions. It's a bit awkward and embarrassing as well to ask the right questions, so it can be tricky. It's also quite hard to get accurate information, even when you do ask the right question of a company. They don't always have the answers, they don't always know, um, and so it can be hard to find the right information. But I hope that we'll find through this that we're not without hope um, and that there are things that we can do. So we had this really great idea to give you a really fun activity to get started, but it's very dark in here, so it might be challenging. So you will have a spot the difference picture. I think it's one between two, so you're doing it in pairs. And the idea is that there are nine extra items in the right-hand picture that aren't in the left-hand one. Some of them are kind of small, um, but they're all things that uh, when we look into their supply chains, um, slavery and exploitation is common. If you can't find one, there's a few extra at the front. So the challenge is just to have a look to see if you can find your nine items and then we'll call them out in a minute. Okay, do you think you've found some or all? Does anybody want to call out uh, what they have seen? Rice, chocolate, underwear, underwear yep. Yeah. A chair, yep, yeah, the wood. Yeah, the mat. Yep, yeah, there's the rose, yep. Yeah. I think we've got most things. Rice, chocolate, what did you say? There's coffee, rice, chocolate, wood, the rug, the flowers, roses particularly. There's a ring on the sink, it's very hard to see. Um, underwear and prawns. There are prawns hiding behind the bowl, which is by the toaster. Um, honestly, they're there. So we used this picture uh, last October around Anti-Slavery Day and a lot of the newspapers actually ran it because it's of interest to people to find out where their stuff comes from. So I wonder if you're surprised by any of these. We've probably talked a lot about chocolate and coffee over the years. Um, I wonder if anything else surprises you there. Um, the ring, for example. Slave owners in the mining industry can trap entire families in slavery. Gold and diamond mining officially falls under the worst forms of child labor. Um, I read a book last year called Blood and Earth, which was about the connection between slavery and environmental destruction. And there was, a, uh, there was a whole chapter on gold mining in Ghana, and it was incredibly um, hard, hard reading, um, hard to accept the reality. The chair, um, wood cutting, for example, slaves trapped in wood cutting facilities can be forced to produce one ton of wood a day. What about the roses, the coffee, the rice, the carpet? Um, of the 40 million uh, slaves, 40.3 million slaves today, as many as one in four are children. And in fact, while we're in this seminar, another 120 children are gonna be sold into slavery. Some are forced to work on rose farms, picking thorny flowers until, um, until their fingers bleed, or coffee plantations, rice mills, carpet factories where they're not fed enough and often, most often denied their chance to go to school. Or chocolate. Many cocoa farmers live below the poverty line, earning less than £1.50 per day. Children in this industry can often be kidnapped or sold. We know it can be hard to get our heads around the reality, um, around what we're buying, and you've probably heard some of this before, but I wonder if you're surprised by any of them. I wonder if you've ever thought about prawns before. Maybe you've heard some of the stories. Um, in the UK, we consume around 85,000 tonnes of prawns each year, much of which comes from Thailand, where slavery in the seafood industry is widespread. And IJM have been partnering with Walmart, um, a really huge corporate um, based in the U out of the US, to look into uh, what the reality is in the Gulf of Thailand in the fishing industry there. Um, Walmart are doing it because they want, they sell a lot of prawns and they want to clean up their supply chain. They want to actually have a positive impact. So I think that's an encouraging thing to take from that.
But what did we find then when we did this research? We found that illegal overwork and underpay was rife. Um, many labourers are violently abused, forced to work up to 20 hours per day. Often they're promised a certain amount of money and they see a small fraction of that, if any, money. Nearly 20% of the fishermen that, we, uh, that were interviewed reported being physically abused at sea. And that, was, um, that number went up whenever um, ships, it's called trans transshipped, uh, so whenever they pass what they catch to another ship out at sea and they don't even go back to port. So on those ships that aren't going back to port very often, the incidence of physical abuse um, increases. In fact, 100% of fishermen in those types of boats reported a physical abuse. Some even told about um, witnessing murders on the boats and um, murders of other fishermen. A huge percentage are in debt bondage which is a really common way, you'll know, to hook people into slavery. So they need to borrow money for some kind of family event or medical emergency or something. They borrow the money um, or even uh, we'll give you an advance to come and work for us. Um, and then they need to work to pay that off. But the debt just keeps mounting because interest rates are extortionate um, and more money is added onto the debt. Well, we're feeding you while you're on the ship so that you owe us more money. And then there's a huge amount um, of lack of documentation or access to documentation. So even someone's ID card be being taken away from them for the duration of when they're on the boat. And so even if they escaped, it will be very hard for them to get to the right place or to, be, to get home again um, or not to be deported or treated um, badly in some way because of not having their identification. We've been working with people in, who are from both Cambodia and Thailand who have been trafficked onto these boats. Um, they're recruited uh, often to work on these trawlers. And the stories all have really similar themes. One man, Dom, talked of being promised a really good wage, but it turned out to be a trick. He worked non-stop for six years, sometimes at gunpoint. He said, to put it plainly, I was working as a slave. In the six years, he earned about $2,000, which was tw works out to be $27 a month. He became too sick to work. He had a hernia. And then the Indonesian Navy actually came onto the boat and he was able to go free. He describes his freedom and IJM's help in his recovery and with his legal case. He talks about having a heavy burden removed, a thorn taken from his side. Freedom has no chains. I'm forgetting to put my slides forward. Um, and there was another man, um, he was recruited by a fellow Cambodian, trafficked into Thailand. He was eventually rescued out of Malaysian waters by the Brunei Navy. Um, he shared that he was taken on to Thai ships actually twice, um, and he escaped both times. But, but to escape, he had to jump out of the boat, and he floated in a large bucket in the sea, in open waters, and he chose that rather than staying aboard the ship because he feared for his life, he feared violence. He returned home in May 2017 and his case was referred to IJM. So he's part of our aftercare program and we are prosecuting that case through the court system. We really believe it's important to get convictions against those who are um, carrying out uh, the crime of using slave labor. Some of those stories, it's kind of hard to believe that somebody would choose to jump out of a ship and float in open water in the hope of being rescued rather than stay aboard. What about other kinds of food? I've been working for IJM for about seven years and I have um, lost count of the number of stories which talk about uh, facilities like rice mills in India. So here are some images from a rice mill that we rescued 10 people from a few years back. The people that were enslaved there were lured with a small loan, about $12, uh, equivalent of $12, which they then had to work to pay back. The debts mounted with high interest rates. Um, if there was a couple there, they would take turns sleeping through the night. One would sleep and the other would get up at 1 a.m. and work right through to, till sunset. Um, but this is a child's foot at the bottom who just um, had an open sore on his foot whenever we found him. So where is the good news in all of this? Because it's 
hard to get at some of this information, isn't it? It can be hard to find it. So what do we do as people who don't necessarily work for Tier Fund or IJM? Um, what can we do? Well, to start with, <clears throat> I would encourage you to invest in those that are on the front lines, that are helping those who are enslaved. We cannot all be the person who lifts the child out of the brick kiln, um, who takes the girl out of a brothel. We can't all be that person. That's for the few, but we can all play a role. So I would encourage you to invest in organisations like Tearfun and IJM who are seeing results. Um, last year we rescued over 4,500 people, but we also trained over 27,000 people to do their jobs better. Judges police officers, social workers, to make whole communities safer. Recently, um, in March, we had a landmark conviction, a breakthrough in India. It took 11 years to get. So there were a group of people that were rescued 11 years ago from a rice mill. 24 children, women and men. The mill owner who abused them and enslaved them was finally convicted in March of this year, which was a really big deal in India and sends a really important message. But that took 11 long years of bringing that case before the right people, of pushing it through an over uh, backlogged, overworked system to try and secure justice. I think there's good news in that we are working with the likes of Walmart, we're in conversation with other large corporates who want to look into their supply chains and they want to do things better. We encourage you to look at, uh, look for the fair trademark. I know it is so basic and you've heard it before, but sometimes these things can get lost a little bit um, because we've heard of them so often. And it doesn't seem like very much, but I love what Ruth said about using our everyday lives, or what Romans says, in fact. Um, I'm attributing Romans to you, Ruth. Um, about using our everyday lives. Um, most of life is made up of the mundane, everyday things. And so let's use those mundane, everyday things, like buying stuff, to make a positive impact. You can look further behind fair trade, and you can see... Some t sometimes it's criticised, sometimes it's uh, not seen as enough. Um, people talk about direct trade, that kind of thing. Um, and so, but this is a basic thing that you can start with. I was having a look, and it t it's um, last year in 2017, uh, sales of fair trade products actually rose by seven seven percent um, last year. So I think that's really encouraging that actually people are wanting to. Um, uh, maybe buy something that's maybe less convenient to get to because there aren't as many uh, things um, available or maybe that a little bit more expensive um, but it's a commitment, it's a small thing that we can do. Um, the Good Shopping Guide is something that I would uh, advise you to have a look at when you're making purchases. So you can, it there's so many things on there. Um, so if you want to buy a pair of jeans you can go on and type in jeans and it gives you lots of information about different companies and which are more ethical by their standards. I think um, the question I have over the Good Shopping Guide is that it deals a lot with environmental um, uh, impact and just a little bit around human rights and people, but I think thing that will change and it's a good starting place. So when I was buying a new phone, in the past uh, six months or so, I went on to this uh, site and had a look at phones and networks as well and decided which ones I was most comfortable using. And it does give you a little bit of detail as to why they've scored companies the way they had. So it's a good start. I think it's a really good starting place um, for you. If you want to think about your personal impact, you can go on to slaveryfootprint.org um, and have a look there. Now it's Again, it's pretty general. You put in where you're from and your age and some of the stuff, a little bit about your lifestyle, and that will give you a little bit of a hint as to the impact that you might personally be having. And that can be a really good motivator then to make uh, uh, some changes. So that's a little bit about focusing really in on food and specifically prawns and rice. Um, but uh, I'm going to pass over to Ruth, um, Ruth Kay, and she's going to talk to us about clothing. 
Thanks, Ruth C. Um, I want to tell you a story. Um, I want to tell you about Nazib. So, um, we've got a picture. There he is. So, Nazib, um, he looks quite old in this picture, but um, his story, or where we meet him, is when he's 14 years old. So, at 14 years old, he's finished his education um, in the Bihar state in India. His parents wanted him to get a job to be able to support the family. He can't go any further in his education. The family can't afford it. They're at the position in which they need him to be able to begin to support the family. But trying to find a job in the Bihar state in India for a 14-year-old is quite difficult. So some people came to his village and they offered him a job. They said they would pay about £60 a month, which is a reasonable wage. Um, it would really make a difference to his family. But there was just one catch. It involved working away from his home and his family. After much discussion, um, at 14, Nazib and his family took the brave decision for him to go and work away to ensure that there was enough food for his family to be able to provide for his siblings um, and support his parents. But when Nazib left, they never saw the money. And this is a, a reoccurring often story that we hear when we're working in communities, um, especially communities with people living in extreme poverty, that they never saw the money. And there's a question about that. Is that because Nazib never got the money or is that because he chose to spend it in the bright lights of the city and dishonor his family? And traffickers rely on the assumption that families would make that that money's been spent in the bright lights of the city. Nazib has shamed his family, so they're not going to go looking for him. What actually happened was Nazib was trafficked to the state of Punjab, where he was forced to work 21 hours a day, sleeping on a factory floor, sewing zips into clothing. I don't know how many of you may be wearing something that has zip on it today. I have a zip in my dress. He was sewing zips into clothing for any of the clothing that we might be wearing today. And it wasn't until he became too ill to work with typhoid that he was released. And he had to borrow money to make the three-day journey back home to his family. Now, thankfully, Nazib and his family um, have been able to be supported by Tearfund's partner, Emmanuel Hospital Association, who have helped them set up a chicken business so they don't have to contemplate their child leaving them for work again. But that's not the case for many families. And Tearfund works hard to prevent people from ending up in a situation where they have no choice, that somebody has to go away and work um, for their family, or that they are in a position where they have no choice and they believe somebody that they say they will pay them 60 pounds a month to sew zips into clothing. The International Labour Organization estimates that 25 million people are in forced labour, with many making textiles and garments to satisfy the demand of consumers in Europe, the US and beyond. So that's 25 million people in forced labour, who are many of them are making textile and garments for our clothes. Some of you may recognise this image. Does it look familiar to you? So this is the Rana Plaza um, disaster, where the building which was housing textile workers collapsed in 2013 and it killed 1,100 garment workers. Workers who it transpired had been making some of our clothes that we buy in shops like Primark. I just want you to take a moment to look at what you're wearing today and on your label see where it's from. Have a peek if you're wearing a jumper. Something that's obviously modest enough for you to be able to look at the label. It's also very dark, so you might not be able to read it. Has anyone got any countries? India? China? Cambodia, I'm Cambodia, my cardigan's from Cambodia. Anywhere else? 
India, yep. Bangladesh. So we've got lots of countries in Southeast Asia, um, which is where we often hear stories of people being trafficked. My cardigan's from Cambodia. Um, one of my friends lives in Phnom Penh in Cambodia, and she tells me how she's able to get the clothes that are the height of fashion in the markets there, where people have smuggled them out of the sweatshops, where they might have something wrong with them, and they're sold for pennies, and then they're sold in H&M down the road for many, many more pounds. Um, and she says that it's just a wash with sweatshops and factories and garment um, workers in that area. And you can get anything, that they're changing clothes every week, it's something different that they're making. Supply chains are really complex, which meant that um, with the Rana Plaza um, disaster, many com companies that make our clothes were actually unsure as to whether some of their clothes were being made in that factory. Because you may ship it from one place to sew it together, one place to cut the material, and another place to put buttons or zips on them. And so you can move from one place to another, it's difficult to track. Because of the complexities, it, we don't often know the environments in which our clothes are made. But it doesn't mean that we can just ignore it or shrug our sh shoulders and feel like this is just too complex um, and move on. This is where we begin to think about living our ordinary, everyday life as a living sacrifice to God. I love a bargain. Like my mum literally built it in me. You can, so I'm from Yorkshire in England. I'm a proper northern girl. Um, and, you know, it was always, if you could get a bargain, it was great. The cheapest thing, cheapest chips. Um, but one day I went to Debenhams and I bought myself two tops. Um, they were in the sale. They were a great bargain. And as I walked out and had them in my bag, I just thought, actually, you know, what, at what cost did I buy those tops? They were so cheap. Did they really able to pay somebody's wage for them to be able to make them? So I decided at that point to go cold turkey, um, which was also the same time as I got married. So my husband was really pleased that I committed to not buying anything new for a whole year. Um, and he did say, as soon as you got married to me, you ended up looking a little bit more scruffy with holes appearing in your clothes. Um, but I spent that time, a bit like Ruth was saying, she um, went Lent for it without makeup. I spent that time doing a bit of research, thinking about the ethics of who makes my clothes, of the high street, of fast fashion, things like that. Um, and then I, after the end of the year, I then went out and thought about what items of clothing I really needed, um, what I might need to replace, what actually had holes in, and my husband told me I couldn't wear anymore, um, and also where I might buy them from. And I found that there were places like People Tree, which, who made this dress, who um, commit to ethical fashion, whether that um, is ensuring that their clothes are made by people who are fairly paid or whether they're made with organic cotton, whether it impacts the environment or whether it impacts people and human rights. And there are numbers of organizations, so People Tree, Bibico, Monkey Jeans, even Marks and Spencers sells fair trade cotton nowadays. And you can look at the Good Shopping Guide and it'll give you some um, ideas of where you might be able to buy some of those clothes. But I also thought about, in, do I need all the clothes that I have? And I now use a system which some people think is crazy, other people think it's no big deal at all because they live in the system already. But I wear 33 items over three months. So um, every three months I change, I like swap out some stuff, so get some warmer clothes um, or get something, like whatever I have in my kind of spare winter wardrobe but I only have th 33 items that I wear over three months, and that includes shoes, includes jewelry, includes clothes, scarves, sh everything, um, except for pajamas. I can um, have a few more pajamas if I want. Um, but basically, I have found that what I often did was just wear the same thing over and over again. So if I split it down and do 33 items, 
um, then I get more wear out of my clothes and then I realise what I really want or what I really need. I was telling some people in the office about this the other day and some, one person was really excited and thought that was brilliant. One person was absolutely mortified and thought, how on earth would you do that? And someone else said, that's what I already do. So it might be some, a new novel idea for you or it might be something that you already do. But it means that when it comes round to me wanting to buy something else, I know what I want um, and I think carefully and maybe about what ethics might be behind that. And then I can do things like go to a charity shop and try and find that item of clothing, which is a double win because it is secondhand, it's giving it a new life and also it's helping a good cause. Or if you don't have time to trawl charity shops, um, I do this thing where I set up lists on eBay um, for specific items of clothing that I want. So I want a blue cardigan, I'll type in blue cardigan, my size, women's, set up a list and then it'll send me every now and again those um, items of clothing that are up on eBay and I can buy them knowing that say it's from a specific, so say I like fat face clothes, I search fat face um, and then I know that they'll fit me um, and I buy them, get them at a good deal but also means that I'm giving something a second life. The other principle is 30 wears. Um, one of my friends does something called 30 wears, where if she does buy something brand new um, and isn't able to potentially think about um, or go and buy it from People Tree or doesn't have the money, she thinks about making sure that it's a real investment, that she's going to wear it over 30 times. Um, so she thinks about ensuring that everything she buys um, has 30 wears behind it. And with my 33 items in three months, I can often work out that it's easy to do 30 wears. And then the other thing you can do, not just your buying habits, but is think about or ask people, shops and clothing items that you like, ask them where they made your clothes. There's something called the fashion revolution and they start this thing where they encourage people to say, to ask businesses, who made my clothes? We're competing. And so if you look at the, uh, um, where your clothes are from, India, Bangladesh, Cambodia, China, and you can send a message to the person who, the company that makes it. So you can take a photo of that label um, and you can tweet it or you can email it and you can say, who made my clothes? and you ask the retailer where you got your clothes from, who made them. They're then obliged, because you've bought that off them, um, for good customer service to come back to you and tell you who made your clothes. And you may, if it's good, get a picture like this, which is a whole load of people holding up signs saying, I made your clothes. Um, and these are people who um, are proud to have said, I've made your clothes, I've made them ethically and get, get a fair wage um, and so it's a it's a thing that was set up as part of the fashion revolution week that's still going that you can tweet people or send them a message on Instagram or email them saying who made my clothes and they'll come back to you and tell you um, who made them or where they were made and in what way and if they can't answer you then they need to look more deeply into their supply chains because retailers are motivated by supporting, um, by responding to their customers because they want you to come back and they want a good reputation. That's okay. So there's a few things to think about clothes. Think about Nazib, who spending, was spending his time sewing zips into clothing that supply chains are um, spread across many different places, so it becomes a bit complex. But we can do a few things just by asking retailers who made your clothes, by thinking about what you wear, where you buy it from, researching on the Good Shopping Guide, um, what are the ethics behind the companies, or even choosing to go for particularly ethically made clothes, um, fair trade cotton, um, or people like People Tree. Over to Ruth C. Thanks. We're actually coming to a close soon. You'll be really glad to know. Um, but you will have a chance if you want to ask some questions. We want to take time to do that. Um, but I'm aware that we've given you loads of information um, this morning. 
uh, so far. We've learned a lot. We've learned uh, the facts and figures of slavery, <clears throat> um, the 40.3 million, and then some of the smaller statistics under that. And um, we've learned about some of the names and faces behind those facts, behind those figures. Nazib, um, Dom from Cambodia, for example. We've learned where we can go for more information. Uh, places like um, the Good Shopping Guide, for example, looking at the Fair Trade Foundation. Uh, a lot of the steps that we can take that both Ruth and I have mentioned this morning, and uh, some of them are listed there. Um, so investing in those who are part of the solution, looking for the Fair Trade Mark, um, the Good Shopping Guide, going for second hand, going for 30 wares. Maybe you're thinking 30 wares, I wear my clothes hundreds of times, um, but some of us don't, so that's a good challenge. Asking people about supply chains. So yesterday I was in Boots and I wanted to ask, um, I wanted to ask one of the um, brands about the mica issue. And so I uh, was looking at the makeup, looking at the blusher, and I asked the girl behind the counter, do you know um, where your mica comes from or do you know if you have any kind of policies on how it's made? And she really didn't know at all. She said, well, you'll have to look at the website for that. Um, but even that in itself is interesting. Um, a company that's really on top of things will, have will often have passed information down the line to front-facing staff um, so that they know because they're concerned about ethics and that kind of thing. Um, so I think that, you know, asking those questions, and it did feel slightly awkward, um, but I still think it's a really uh, a good thing to do. And then they know, actually, people are interested in these things. Um, on the makeup issue, in case you're interested, um, Lush have started to make their own mica, so they use synthetic mica because they felt that they couldn't... Um, actually ensure that uh, mica that came from uh, quarries and from being or from being mined they couldn't ensure that it was um, done ethically so I thought that's a really interesting uh, thing to find out at the end there I have put uh, that we need to pray and sometimes when I tell people that that's one of the steps they kind of look at me a little bit glazed I know that what else can I do um, but I really believe that prayer is so significant. Um, if you've ever heard me talk before, I always talk about how in IJM we pray every day for an hour. So we have half an hour in the morning, each individual of all of our staff around the world, we have half an hour stillness time and then half an hour corporate prayer later in the day where we're praying for all of the, the needs and all of the cases, all of the people that, um, that we want to rescue, etc. And that's an hour every day out of our working day, which is quite a commitment, um, but it has been a really powerful thing um, for us. It keeps us um, focused on whose uh, work this ultimately is. It is God's work. He leads this. He is the God of justice and he cares. And um, so we've got to be coming before him. And it helps me to realize that the pressure is not all on my shoulders because I'm bringing it before him every day. So I think that you could be feeling um, a couple of things this morning. You could be feeling a little bit frustrated and cross that this is how the world is. That people are exploited just so that we can get our bargain, cheapest chips. I mean, that's pretty bad. The reality is difficult. And so I understand if that's how you're feeling. And so I would encourage you not to keep prayer at number seven, but to start there. Um, ask him to turn that anger into a steady conviction that you want to do the right thing, that you want to make good choices. Um, there is a little book that we used to sell called um, Deepening the Soul for Justice. And the first line of it is, seeking justice doesn't begin in a brothel. Seeking justice begins with the God of justice. So seeking justice isn't the first step is not the rescue, for example, or the choice that we might make, but it's actually deepening our relationship with the God from whom uh, justness comes from. Um, it's because of him uh, that that sense of injustice is in our hearts. So we've got to be investing in that relationship. We've got to allow him to turn our uh, flash in the pan anger that sometimes it is into this steady conviction. So I'd encourage you to do that and to allow those roots to go really deeply.
You might be feeling a bit overwhelmed. There's a lot of information. There's a lot to take in. And sometimes it can be hard to find the right information and the true information. So we've put some of um, the suggested next steps up here. Please do jot those down. Um, but be assured that progress is being made. In July of this year alone, um, IJM teams around the world uh, rest have rescued over 300 individuals just in that one month. And we were kind of counting it as it went on. And we were rescuing people from poultry farms, um, from silk farms, from flower farms, from brick kilns, all these different industries where exploitation is happening. But a rescue has happened and a message has been sent out that this is not acceptable. That is really exciting and really good news. Um, you may know, I'm sure you do, about the Modern Slavery Act, which came in a few years ago. And in it, there's a clause um, for companies to uh, be more transparent about their supply chains. And for bigger companies, they have to publish modern slavery statements. And so that can be encouraging too, to go on and have a look at a company that you like to see what is their modern slavery statement say. Um, so the likes of Henderson's that own all of uh, the spars here, um, they have a modern slavery statement on their website and they're actively pursuing um, positive steps to ensure that they are not exploiting people in their supply chain somewhere. So that can be encouraging. But you may also find then a company that you really like and you can't find their modern slavery statement. But that then is something that you can go to them and say, I'm looking for this, can you give me a copy of it? I'm interested in this issue. So I think it's good um, if we're feeling overwhelmed to focus on the progress that's being made and the positive things that are happening. Lastly, you might be feeling really excited um, to get started or to spread the word and we would encourage that. Um, don't just take the actions yourselves, but talk about them um, encourage and sometimes even be the one to challenge other people um, because I know I have conversations with people all the time about where they buy clothes in particular and a bargain is kind of heralded as what we should all aim for. But as Ruth said, at what cost? So sometimes it's appropriate, not all the time, sometimes it's appropriate to be the one to challenge those around us. Well, actually I heard, I was at the seminar and I heard this, or do you know this? Um, and there's a better way to do that. So if you're feeling excited, then I would encourage you that um, that is brilliant and please do spread the word. So um, I hope you've jotted down your next steps. Um, if you want to get more information from either Tier Fund or IGM, you can do that. Please speak to us. Um, in the um, IGM magazine, there's a place that you can write down to get um, prayer updates and that kind of thing, which we'd really love. And you can hand me those before you leave. Um, I think it'd be good. We probably have a bit of time, do we, for questions? We've got a few minutes. Great. So if you have any questions, um, put your hand up and Lindsay can go around and uh, collect those and Ruth and I can answer or try um, well I'm sure you know the answer is yes um, and there have been oh sorry the question is is there slavery happening in the UK <clears throat> so we have focused really um, on international issues because um, that's probably what we spend the majority of our time thinking about in our organizations um, but yes, of course, there is slavery in the UK. Slavery crosses borders. You can't contain it. And that's the nature of it. And it's hidden. So in Northern Ireland in particular, um, it's hard to get a number or an estimate for the number of people enslaved. But in the past financial year, there were between 40 and 50 individuals rescued from exploitation, some from sexual exploitation, but actually the majority from labor exploitation. And that's industries like the fishing industry, um, agricultural industry, marijuana growing, um, fast food as well. Um, so yes, you'll know that that is an issue. Um, there are issues in our construction industry, um, but there are different coalitions of organizations which are trying to um, combat that. I would say um, that, uh, that we focus for us on developing world countries because often the justice systems are so much more broken and not functioning um, and not enforcing laws that are already there. And so that's why for IJM we choose to do our casework um, in developing world countries because we want to strengthen justice systems. If you've anything to say on that, no. 
when you put up the slide of I made your clothes with all those people, how can you make sure they are authentic and not the ones being exploited? That's a good question. Um, so these are um, businesses that have chosen to be explicit about saying, here are people I, who have made the clo your cl clothes. So they're people who have already got um, the procedures and policies in place and are proud to say that they are ethical companies. Um, so there are, and these came from a selection on the um, Fashion Revolution, Revolution website. Um, and they're from organizations like People Tree, um, Thought Clothing, Bibico, all places that are ethically made clothes. Um, if you were to send a kind of who made my clothes to a main high street retailer who potentially hasn't thought about it, um, they're unlikely to necessarily send you a picture like this, but they might send you their modern day slavery statement or they will send you specific things. So there's things like the ethical trading initiative that they may be signed up to, which means that there's some expectations that they would um, get things audited independently, that they would um, check their slave, their supply chains. And so the, if, a if a business is promoting themselves as saying, you know, here are the people that made your clothes, they're likely to be promoting themselves as an ethical business themselves. Um, the questions and the places that we're probably most concerned about are main high street retailers or the kind of quick fashion um, online websites and things. And that's maybe where it's key to ask people. And like Ruth said, they probably don't know the answer in the shop. And that's telling in itself. But by asking that question, it's making people think about it. Okay, well, sure, we'll close up. I'll say, I'll pray, if that's okay, um, just to close. Um, Lord, we're grateful to be here. Thank you for the chance to learn. It can be hard to hear um, the reality behind some of what we're using every day. Um, but we want to make good choices and we want to uh, take your heart for justice and to make that real in our everyday, in our everyday lives, um, our walking around and our going to work and um, our living our lives. We want to make those good choices. So help us to keep a focus on this, help us to learn more and help us then to be able to put uh, that learning into action uh, by your spirit and by your grace. Amen.